everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 121. So glad you could join me. Hope everybody found the new time. Uh, well, now we're broadcasting live at noon Eastern time on Sundays. So hopefully uh, you can get that in your calendars and uh, know what time we're doing it. Uh, we started moved this show up because Tashani Doshi is the guest today. And she is, um, well, right now she's in Abu Dhabi. And then it is on 9 p.m. there. So we wanted a good time for her. But I thought this would be a good time, too, for the show. Uh, so... Before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been a continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you do too, so please do make sure you click the like button and share and subscribe, ring the bell for notifications, all that good stuff. Leave me a review on wherever you're listening to this podcast because that's what helps poetry spread around the internet. And so please do that now if you would. Now today's guest, like I mentioned, is Tashani Doshi. She'll be with us in just a few moments, or just a few minutes, I guess, about 15 minutes. But first, we'd like to do the Poets Respond poem of the day. And it's a familiar face. Jack Riddle was the guest on Rattlecast number maybe 98 or so. And here's this poem about the recent school shooting in Detroit. Let's call up Jack right now. Hello, it's great to see you again, Jack. You too, Tim. There always is. Good. That's me looking at you, but this is back and forth. I like that. Yeah, it's great. To, it's great to have you on. You're a great guest um, on you know the, over the summer, and I uh, just always love your poetry. And this was a very, very touching, um, powerful poem you published today um, on on Poetry Spawn. Do you want to talk a little bit about what inspired it and, and the events, which we all I think know? But well, the event, of course, was the was the shooting in our state, which is on the other side of the state. Uh, but it's in one sense, it, I don't know if it's your state, it's your state. And also, uh, what inspired it was the, the recognition of, uh, the contrast that's just, uh, that is, uh, so many people will say it's just so difficult right now to, to hold these two, uh, things in mind, the horrors and then the, uh, the season to be merry, shall we say. Mm -hmm. And then we have a daughter who's a teacher, and every day I just hope she gets home. Uh, it's, it's just part of the consciousness now. Uh, yeah, it's frightening. And what stood out, I was looking through Poets Respond um, poems to share some other poems like throughout the show. And at this time of year, it seems like almost every year there's one of these school shootings. I mean, there was the... I mean, so we have poems about them from every it's like early you know it's sort of the end of the school year maybe and people are worn down or something and the the problems have been building all semester i don't know it seems like yeah. like this is a time where it happens and then right in the holidays too as you point out in the poem um yeah i don't know it's just so hard to know what to say after after so many years and so many poems it's been it's been you know, 20, what, 25 years since Columbine, which kind of started the whole thing. Startling. Yeah. yeah. Startling. Yeah. You'd say, you'd, well, this could never happen again. And then it's again and again and again. And I don't know if the feeling becomes numb, except, uh, it becomes, un, uh, not unaccepted, exceptional, you know, you, you sort of, yeah, it's another one. Yeah, yeah. And then there was that great break kind of last year when nobody was in school. And so there weren't any, you know, or at least any that you heard of or Yeah. And you know, with everybody locked down. And and then the thing that always gets me too is just that the way that it started with Columbine 
and it's it's really a psychological contagion. It's a self-excited psychological contagion where, um, you know, there's a study that came out in PLOS about um, how within 13 days of a school shooting, the odds of there being another mass school shooting go up 30%. And oh so my. even even talking about this, like, sort of spreads it forward in a way. But we have to deal with it, too, at the same time. Um, and, and so it's just hard to know even what to do or what to say or how to respond, which is why poetry is such an important thing, you know, an important vehicle for, for finding a response. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, as I, I have had several emails this morning, lots, and um, the one, it, I'm struck by, you know, that old W.H. Auden thing about poetry makes nothing happen. And you feel that, you know, I, there was a side of me that said who in the world am I to try to write something about this? I really was very self-conscious about it. And uh, and then at the same time, I reversed back to, say, Seamus Haney saying one human heart. And, and that the, that's maybe that's our quote unquote job is to is to have the poem land in the heart that it uh, that needs it and that that's what it's about. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And and I think your poem uh, does that. Why don't you go ahead and read it? Um, the last day of November. Sure. <laughs> All right. The last day of November. My wife is at her spinning wheel. She first cleans, dries, and combs the fleece, and then dyes the wool. She will spin yarn to make a shawl, stocking cap, socks, she disappears into her gentle quiet. I am a third of the way through reading four books, but I don't want to read any of them. I want what I know you want, to be happy, actually happy, to love in a happy world. Today, there was yet another school shooting. Some students felt it coming. Three kids who thought they were grown up, dead. One more thought likely to die, did. The others will live, the news dares to say, recover. Tonight we played Christmas carols for the first time this season. Yes, tis the season. This morning, surgeons at three different hospitals Awakened, assuming yet another routine day of rounds and operations. When they were 17, did they imagine Advent would offer them the inevitable impossibility of saving the assumption of a future? That they would never again be able to say, Happy Holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy New Year, without being caught in an ambush of memory. Tonight, thousands of parents will be unable to sleep, or tomorrow, or on into ever. Teachers who each day hope it will not, cannot happen again, will think again about construction or an office job. And guns, they will sleep in the garage, the cabinet, on the top shelf. They will rest and be at the ready. No, I don't want to read. I don't want to hear again about God's mercy, the peace that comes from above or meditation, Calvin's endlessly facile legacy of blame, 
the need for prayer and legislation. I am tired of pursuing happiness. I want to breathe it in as ubiquitous as air. And while we're at it, I want the curriculum revised to teach sentimentality. That it is not any more false feeling than the unguarded synapses in the shooter's brain. Scholars, put away the safety of secondary sources. Sit with your students. Abandon the inhumane hideaway of objective distance. Throw open your hearts. Let sentiment break our shielded souls before another rifle insurgent's words have to. My wife never asks for the meaning. She sits in silence at her wheel, twisting a lamb's wool into yarn to knit whatever it takes to keep another warm. Our dog is asleep, head on his paws. The twin sister cats curl together. I'm not going to pick up my books. I'm going to begin to trim the tree, wondering how many five-year-olds will sit on Santa's lap, and when he asks, what do you want for Christmas, will answer, a gun. Yeah, thanks so much, Jack Riddle. Thanks so much for sharing that, Jack. Uh, a very, I don't know, it's a comforting poem to hear your voice and your thoughts on, on that subject. I'm really glad you could write that and share it with everybody. Thank you so much. Yep, have a good day. You too. That was Jack Riddle with his poem for today. Um, it was uh, the last day of November. And I thought I would, really, I, I, it was strange. I went back and looked at this week throughout all the years of, of Rattle, um, of Poetry Spawn Live, which, or Poetry Spawn, which is five or seven years. And so many of the years had a poem about shootings um, for this first week in December. Um, so here's just one of them. This is um, Marjorie Latfi Gill. And this is the gun in its holster. Put this on screen. And this is, um, there's a, there's a, there's an art installation that she's writing this after too, which I think I can show. Let's see. Nope, I guess it's not there. This is a, um, I guess it's gone, but there's an art installation of a shotgun about the size of a tree, uh, leaning up against a tree, um, Marjorie Latfi says, In a week where protests continue about the shootings in Ferguson and elsewhere, Cornelia Parker's landscape with gun and tree seems a fitting metaphor for both the genesis of violence and how our culture chooses to respond to it. That was one of the many poems, and, and this is The Gun in Its Holster by Marjorie Latfi Gill. The gun in its holster, like a rifle lent against a tree in a winter wood, is just waiting to go off. Look closely, decoy paisley adorns the inlay, and one tear-shaped dropper points a warning from the sidelock. When held, the trigger needs no convincing, no embellishment, is as familiar as the handle of that old hunting knife handed down from your father as your great-grandfather's one good thing. And that was Marjorie Latfi reading The Gun in Its Holster. And that was from uh, December 7th, 2014, so seven years ago this week. And now we're going to move on to our featured poet. 
and um, Tishani Doshi will be right here in just a moment. Um, Tishani, you'll know, you know, all the subscribers will know that you, um, you know, read an interview and you know all about her. So please feel free to have comments and questions ready to follow up on that interview. And uh, we'll be right back with Tishani Doshi. we're back thanks so much for your patience and as i mentioned today's guest is tashani doshi who has just become one of my favorite poets she is just amazing um tashani doshi publishes poetry essays and fiction she's the recipient of the eric gregory award for poetry winner of the all india poetry competition and her first book countries with a body won the forward prize for best first collection in 2006 Girls Are Coming Out of the Woods was shortlisted for the Ted Hughes Award and the Firecracker Award. Her fourth collection of poetry, A God at the Door, which is what we'll be focusing on today, um, has been shortlisted for the Ford Prize for Poetry in 2021, and it was just published in the United States by Copper Canyon Press. She lives in Tamil Nadu, India, but right now she is in um, Abu Dhabi in the UAE, and here she is, Tishani Doshi. Hello, Tishani. It's so great to see you again. Hi, Tim. Nice to see you. And, and hello, everyone else as well. <laughs> um, do you want to start out just by reading a poem um, from the book? Sure. Um, I'll start with uh, a poem called Self. And when they ask, what kind of animal would you be? I always say gazelle or lark. We all want to be monuments, but can't help shoving our fingers in dirt. Imagine a life in childhood, one face to the womb, another to the future. What we remember is the road, peering through a lattice at dusk, the trauma of burial. Will we have terracotta armies to take us through? Will we be alone with the maggots? How good the rain is after a failed romance, never mind the muddy bloomers. We are appalled by life and still any chance we get, we emerge from the earth like cicadas to sing and fuck for a moment of triumph. The shock we carry is that the world doesn't need us. Even so, we go collecting parts, an afternoon by the sea, a game of hopping on and off scales, nose low to the ground, looking for that other glove to complete us. Here I am, globe, spinning planet. Tell me, why are you not astonished? And that was Self from Tishani's newest book, A God at the Door from Copper Canyon Press, with this beautiful cover. And it's just a wonderful book. I hope everybody picks up a copy. Um, so Tishani, it's always strange doing these um, these podcasts after we do the interview because I'm not ever sure if I should cover some of the same stuff that we talked about before or try not to because like half of the audience has read it and half hasn't um, but do you want to just start out just explaining like your background and how you became a poet and, and what your interest in poetry is in particular because you have such a, a diverse background in dance and all sorts of things what is it about poetry that that what what drew you to poetry so I think you know um I see it as a very def definite moment in my life when I decided that I was going to become a poet. And I was in college uh, in my third year, uh, junior, and I was studying in this college in, in America called Queens in North Carolina. And I was, 
I was sort of on a path to doing business administration and communications. And I, I took this writing class and, and that was something that just changed everything for me. And I think I've always loved language. I've always been interested in what language can do. But somehow it was this electric energy of sound and what poetry is and how putting those words together can create a certain power. And I was really interested in doing that myself. And I, I, I feel like it was one of those moments where I just changed the direction of my life and I decided that I was going to become a poet. However, that was going to happen. I didn't know. And, you know, I think it's, it's a really, um, it's a really strange path to to follow in a sense because um you know it's it's not really seen as a sort of career choice for people uh journalism novelist but but poet I, and i was only writing poetry at the time i wasn't doing anything else and and i still think of poetry as the very central impulse for me as as a, somebody who writes but also somebody who reads i think when I'm really um, when I'm really floundering in a way in terms of trying to uh, find a center, I often find that it comes to me through a poem, um, through a book that I'm reading or through a book that I've read and I go back to. And I feel that there's a lot of, um, there's just a lot of, uh, I don't know what the word is, but there's some kind of, structure and form and beauty that poetry allows as a reader and as a writer of it that 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 allows you to hold the world in a particular way and and I think for me there's not much else that that does that you know yeah and there's something there's just something spiritual about it like I was thinking we moved the time for the show to Sunday morning which is traditionally like the church time um, in the U.S., mm-hmm. or, or it's around the world in the Christian religion. And, um, and it feels like to me that poetry is a kind of secular religion. Like there's a spirituality to sort of the act of utterance and naming and discovering and finding your place in the world through language. It's a very, it's a very spiritual thing to me. And it feels like it's a very spiritual thing to you. I mean, I mean, the book is a God at the door. And in a way, poetry is a God at the door. And so can you talk a little about that, about about the spiritual aspect of poetry, about discovery and, and that act of creation through utterance or whatever it is? There's just such magic to that. Yeah, I mean, it is, uh, it's two things, I think. It, it is creation, but it's also a kind of power and the power that comes with creation and with naming and with um, sort of interacting uh, with the world and... Um, producing it in some way in the form of a poem. And I think in this book particularly, I mean, I've always seen myself as somebody who's interested in the area of the sacred and the spiritual and uh, being of um, no organized faith myself, but sort of growing up and spending most of my life in India and being surrounded by so many religions and feeling this sense of other people's belief and wanting to have belief of my own, but saying, oh, actually, I can recognize it in in other people, but I know I don't have that thing. And then I guess finding it in some way, like you were saying it through other uh, modes and definitely poetry is something in the way, if you think of the sacredness of just sound of utterance, 
there is something quite magical about investing words with that power and saying that by saying these words and you know that whole idea of incantation and and that, and that closeness of poetry with prayer i think is really of interest to me um and i think in this book um there is a lot of that there is a lot of trying to find what is holy um but i think there's also this sort of uh, it's it's also accompanied with a certain amount of irreverence um because partly i think uh so much of holiness and so much of um religiosity and so much of all that to me um can be cloaked with a kind of hypocrisy or a kind of again trying to squash other people and so i think in the way it's like how do we re how do we find again the truly sacred and how do we find what is holy for us and 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 what are those um sources available uh, to us and i would definitely say that language is one of those sources uh, for me it's it's like how can poetry retrieve that um that strength of language you know uh from everywhere yeah yeah that's just a great explanation and and that's what i loved about the interview so if anybody hasn't read the interview yet um please do but let's hear another poem uh, what do you want to read next um so maybe i'll read pilgrimage just because it kind of i guess ties in with what we were just talking about um and this is one of the early poems in the book i bring it up on my screen so i can read it okay pilgrimage every now and then the universe hands out treats a cryogenic pod for christmas a family trip to greece We stare like pigeons at our feeders impatient for the next gift to drop sprouting stress bars on our feathers at the bounty of some other pigeon's trough We were taught to show devotion by walking in circles we had visions in caves and when the host served an aperitif of fermented mare's milk we drank it with grace We walked barefoot keeping the center to our right measured paces between shrines and twilight these days we take the video coach but still bring baskets of marigold in times of war we go from cot to cot whispering sweet nothings into soldiers ears we write letters to their beloveds and preserve their relics toothpick comb bone how else to arrive at the ecstasy of ourselves if we cannot see another's body the world has its unknown territories its dragons we wander about with blindfolds shouting marco only the devil responds polo it is all remembrance to repeat and repeat again the names of what we deem holy sometimes we move so far we forget where we've been It's like looking at an old picture of your face. The earth holds all our dead, all our half-eaten apples and still it has space. We make circuits around history with lamps and portable altars of fire, feel the thrill of ghosting in the footsteps of gods and demons. Remember this hill where you were crucified? the spot in the river where you tore out your breast and flung it at the cursed city remember the sky you forgot in your room 
confusing the blue of the screen for the cosmos within. No matter how many nights you spend in exile, remember, pilgrim, you come home to this skin. Yeah, and that is Pilgrimage from God at the Door. And it's one of those poems that, that really feels so much like prayer. And one of the things that, that you already mentioned that's just fascinating about this book, too, is the, the sense of humor that it has. And I love that you bring that up already, that, you know, if God definitely has a sense of humor. I mean, so much, there's so much irony and strange things that happen in the world. And, and I mean, God must because, um, <laughs> and, and, and so you, and you play that, like there's the sacred, but there's also this irreverence too. There's like a reverence and an irreverence in through, throughout a lot of these poems. And, and that's just the, one of the things that makes the book so entertaining to read through. I mean, you know, there's, there's poems about, um, um, the Comeback of Speedos, which is one of the ones we published. But there's so many poems that just have, you know, like humor and titles and certain lines where you'll be, you know, be talking about something very serious and then you'll hit with this undercurrent of humor underneath it. Um, just a wonderful effect that you do. Can you just talk a little bit about that, about why you bring in humor and and not be so serious all the time? I think it's something that developed naturally over uh, over some years in the sense that I began writing, I, I, I'm a very serious person, I think. I, you know, I think all poets are and all writers are to some degree. You have to take it seriously if you, if you want to have, uh, you know, if you want to keep doing it because uh, nobody is sort of asking you to write these poems. So you kind of have to believe in yourself. But I think there's a point at which there's such an inwardness required and such a, um, yeah, you, 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 you can get into this mode of of such seriousness that you know i feel like it's important then to laugh at at oneself and 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 also it's 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 about reflecting what i see as a condition in the world which is this really absurd um is that is that living is absurd and 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 so this sense of marrying the tragedy with the comedy because that is how I essentially experience life. And, and for the longest time, I found it very difficult to do that in poems because the poems were coming from really a place of, and I would say that most poems still begin from that place. It's, it's sort of a, a almost anguish, despair, uh, a really, uh, I would say, a, you know, a, a sort of darker emotional area, sort of very rarely that a poem starts from happiness, joy. Yeah, let's write a poem about that. No, it's usually the sense of, gosh, how do I hold this thing? Um, and how do I transform it into something else? And how can the poem do that? And I think what I, I figured out over some time is that uh, the irreverence or the humor or the slight break in tone is really a way also of deepening this other feeling, this feeling of actual anguish from where the poem begins. Um, and then, uh, you know, I, I, I would sometimes begin poems thinking I'm going to, like in my earlier book, I had a poem about happiness, you know, um, how to be happy in 101 days. And I, I was like, I'm going to write a happy poem. And the poem went so dark, you know, and I was like, God, like, wh why can I not write um, this happy poem? And and I think what I understood then is that the poems for me have to be both. And, and, and I have to allow that sense of jostling happen between 
what is bearable and what is not, and between what is difficult and what is bright and what is joyful and beautiful, because I do think that that is my worldview. And so it's it's my most honest way of, of presenting a poem by acknowledging that it is all of these things, you know? And so I'm really, really happy that you see that in the poems because I, I, um, I think it's, um, it's something that is is happened um, more recently, I would say. Yeah, it, it always seems to me that poetry is a kind of problem solving, which is what what leads it toward dark. Like you, you can't write if you don't have a problem, and um, and and so it, it tends to lead toward darker places because of that. And so when you can bring in the joy through that, it just makes the the po- everything just sing so much more because it's so rare to have that. Um, let's hear the next poem. Um, what's what's next? Oh, yeah. What should I read next? Okay. Um, So maybe I'll read um, A Blue Mormon. Um, This is um, a poem that began with butterflies, um, which made me start to think about migration. Um, And yeah, it's, it's called A Blue Mormon Finds Herself Among Common Emigrants. Africa Vafi. It's uncertain why they're here. Pretty sure it's the same old sob story. No food in the fields, government gassing their kids, neighbors throwing bombs on their homes. Shall we go down and save them? They have such short lives, such unpronounceable names. Wouldn't it be better if they stayed put? Do they collect clouds or shells? Can we know? So many die along the way. Think about their lives in far Bombay, subsisting on the undersides of leaves, trying not to get shot in the head while hanging upside down from a tree. Think of Nabokov, that crafty taxonomist, filling note cards with their habits, the original climate refugees. I spoke to one, a blue Mormon, Do you know how difficult it is to be so beautiful, she said. Stuff happens to beautiful creatures. It's unsettling. All those nets and hours and glass jars, all those snot-nosed boys playing Pim the specimen. Did I mention they have a fanatical approach to breeding? Sometimes, the blue Mormon complained, when we don't get enough food, we emerge as dwarves. This is distressing. How to explain there are no perfect conditions. There's always too little rain or too much. Someone's bound to give you a bad TripAdvisor review. All this swarming across highways and lemon ribbons of heat, clustering around hilltops and lakes when they could gather less visibly in locations less elite. Goes without saying, they'll seduce our old parents and get them to sign away the property deeds. Our wives will soon be kneeling at altars of Exora. We must proceed with caution. Maybe we could give them wristbands or pin yellow stars to their tails. Maybe we should build fences or draw crosses on the wing-like doors of their tents. In America, at least, they fix them with sensors to monitor where they go. We must think about the environment. It's too soon to talk of deportation. Certainly, it would be barbaric to separate children from their parents. 
how shameful the aberrant blue Mormon is, shrugging off her feathery vest, singing her sad song of asylum. Do you think I'd be fleeing if I didn't have to? They're just insects, but me, I'm different. Can't you see? That was a blue Mormon finds herself among common emigrants from a god at the door. And um, there's a question here from Richard Westheimer that I was going to ask you about, too. And um, it says, the first two poems were center justified. Um, how do you think this way of situating your poems on the page affect how a reader will read them? And this is something that you're playing with in this book a lot, which, which you weren't doing as much in previous books, was just the shape of the poems on the page. There's some very creative, almost concrete type poems in the book. Mm. Um, and and so, so what were you doing, what were you thinking about in terms of the shapes of the poems? And, and why are some poems shaped that way, but others, like the last poem, is, is a more traditional format for the lines? I guess I've been thinking a lot about the role of breath in poetry and in general, as you mentioned, I'm a dancer. And so it's a big part of my practice. And it's sort of, I suppose, how I think about time and tempo and rhythm. And if I think about the space around the page, that is kind of the breath of the poem. And think um, it that along with... Um, I was reading about a wonderful, uh, and I was actually listening to a talk by another Indian writer called Vikram Chandra about uh, this traditional of picture poems in India, uh, Chitrakavya. And I was so fascinated because these were really sophisticated um, and fun also um, picture poems. And they worked with using different consonants. They, they used different shapes, like the ropes around a drum. One was even about the way that a cow pisses, you know, going back and forth. And, 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 and this, these are, you know, uh, very old poems. And I think I had first come to concrete poetry through, you know, a Paul Nair and then John Hollander and sort of more sort of Western tradition. And so when I read about these Indian Sanskrit and Tamil poems and the way that they played with the page, I just thought that, again, this element of play is interesting. And, and so is there a possibility to introduce that sense of shape as well? Uh, I'm really interested in geometry. I'm interested in how we perceive objects through their form. Um, and I think particularly, again, living in a, in a place like India where there is this quite a decent amount of chaos around shape fixes the eye and we have a lot of things from the very simple patterns around a house uh, you know with a rice flower this very intricate sort of geometric pattern that's made daily to the shape of household implements and you know I suddenly started to just get obsessed with shape and I, I, I everywhere I looked I'd see shapes and and so I think in a way it came into the poems as a way of acknowledging one that poem is also container it is also something that holds the language in a particular way um, and and how could I play with this? And also, can poetry be playful? And can there be this sense of uh, play that the poet has with the audience um, 
through the through the written page and the way that the poem is presented. And so I have, yeah, I have like a poem in the shape of a menstrual cup that I offer to Pliny the Elder. I have the Speedo poem in the shape of Speedos. Um, and I think in a way, um, it's it's very much like thinking about particular poetic forms, whether you would choose to write something in a sestina or a sonnet, why why would you choose a particular form for a poem? And I think in a way, poems demand those those decisions on some level, and and shape has begun to play that sort of a role as well in my decision making. So that's why the book has has a lot of. Um, I think a lot of variations of of the way that the poem is presented. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear that explanation uh, because the you know I think all poets play with shape, um, but but this book plays with it so much it's really fascinating to read. Yeah, so so great explanation for the way those poems are shaped. Um, and Kashyana Singh has a comment here and a question too. So Kashyana says, um, "Space around the page being the breadth of the poem is a great way of expressing why ma." as they say in haiku, or empty space plays a role in poetry. Which I just love that comment, so I wanted to read it. But then she also asks, um, going back to the, the question of problem solving, she says, I think, poem of, I think of poems as a problem solving tool for those emotions, anguish, etc. Do you come to poetry with that lens of catharsis? I think um, not so much catharsis, uh, but with a sense of wanting to transform. Um, I think that there's a, this idea of how um, catharsis is something that is about cleansing and a kind of, I guess, a relief in a way. And I think when I think of poetry and I think of writing a poem that comes from this place of anguish, I don't know that I feel relieved from that situation but i feel that there is an element of transformation that the poem can can affect by by um yeah by transforming it and allowing us to to sort of reclaim in some way or recover and there is uh i've said it previously and i i think it 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 still holds um there's this idea of turning the howl into a song so this this howl with the Ginsberg howl or you know all of us have this howl in us and this this chance of transforming that into song and and that that notion of is it possible to take this um the, the origin uh of of which may be anguish it may be other things and and is it possible to then confront which is also what poetry is about, confrontation, and, and then to transform. And so there are, there are many levels. And I think obviously different poems do different things and work in different ways. But I certainly, certainly am very invested in the idea of emotional transformation that a poem can do. And that is the effect, not just on the maker of the poem, but also on the reader. And, and to maybe go through many emotional registers as they read a poem, you know, so to begin with something and then the poem landing you in a in a different place. Yeah, that's an interesting subject of, of um, how the reader experiences the poem. Do you feel like the poem to you is the same as to the reader? Like it always feels to me like the poet is sort of playing the reader as if they're an instrument. I love that that idea of transforming the howl into a song. But the song that's played is almost a song that's played 
in the reader's body or something. There's some way that it's the same thing. And and so that there's that sense of like transferring your experience. Um, so do you think of the experience of the reader as you're writing the poem? And um, and, and how do you think that interplays? Like there's a way that you become the, the poet as you're reading a poem, which is just really interesting to me. It's like the most intimate connection we can have. So I'm curious your thoughts about that. I think it's hard to know how the poem will be received by somebody else and that it's um, also you know, we know from our own experiences of reading that uh, poems that we've read once, twice, three times change uh, at different times in our life when we read it. And the more times we read it, the more uh, sometimes layers we understand. So I think that whole process is, is very mysterious and it's hard to know what the reader can experience. One hopes that there's some level of transference that while you are writing the poem, and that is a mysterious act in itself, and while the poem is is coming into being as you make it, you have many, many drafts, and suddenly you decide, okay, I, I can stop here. And, and why do you decide to do that? Who knows? You just suddenly decide to let it go. Um, I think that in the same way that that someone can read your poem and maybe catch some of those things, uh, that's the hope. Um, but also, you know, I, I I think sometimes readers are also more intelligent than you can be about your own poem. And they come up with wonderful, wonderful windows into your own poem that you hadn't really thought about. Or maybe they were subliminal or something. So I think, you know, I think that the structure and the way that poems work um, uh, feels uh essentially to me mysterious and I, I'm happy that it's so because I, I, I think the sense of not being able to crack it entirely is part of, of why poetry is so powerful. Um, but I definitely think that there is some sense of, if I can use the word, communion or some kind of sharing uh, that the poem is that bridge between the reader and the writer. And it is possible to have these moments with poets even if they're dead, when we read their work and when we share it with each other and when, when we read it aloud and bring the poem into life, that there is some, something of the maker uh, in, in the poem. Um, and also, I guess another level is, is, is that the, the poems begin to kind of have their own space and then the maker of the poem even recedes to some degree and and so it's less important somehow that you make it and it's gone and that's also okay and maybe that's even better in fact you know yeah i mean there's just so much magic involved that i mean that's what keeps me here year after year um let's hear another poem um what's next okay uh so i thought i could read um maybe i'll read uh tree of life which i I published, I think that was my first poem that I published um, with Rattle. It was, yeah, um, it just came, you know, and, it was just there in the submissions. And um, I wasn't familiar with your work. I knew your name, but I hadn't read it. And then um, it's an amazing poem. Then there's another amazing poem. Then I started reading your other poems and <laughs> it just sort of kicked off the whole thing. But I, but yeah, thanks for sending this poem, A Tree of Life. Yeah, so um, let me bring it up. So this is... Um, written in response to a news story and it was during the 
um, lockdown in, in India last year and many, many thousands of migrants walking home. And among the many stories about these sort of uh, walks, long walks home from the cities to the villages, there was a story about uh, these men who had to self-quarantine on a tree in their village because there were not enough rooms in their houses to be separate from the family. And so they were they were sleeping in this tree. And there was something about that image that was both tragic and romantic to me. Uh, and it reminded me also of Satyajit Ray's great film, um, uh, Patar Panchali. And there is this sense of the forest and the magic of that, but again, also this sense of impending tragedy. So I'll just read it. It's called Tree of Life. It could be romantic to sleep in a tree with all the sounds of the forest around, insect, cacophony, elephants, and musk. I have always loved the word rut, a seasonal glut the opposite of looking through a window to a never-ending view of wives washing dishes in the sink, Simone de Beauvoir's idea of the domestic abyss. But reader, she had silk curtains and chandeliers. She had multiple lovers and appointments with Sartre in the Jardin du Luxembourg. It is dangerous to romanticize anyone's life, especially low to purge the nobility of the poor. So let me not say how much I cried watching Satyajit Ray's Patar Panchali, especially the part with the kids running through fields of cash to watch the train of modernity pass. More poignant if you know the director's wife had to pawn her jewels for the film to be made. The goodness of some women, they almost levitate, like the girl in the film, child of the forest, how she picks thorns from her feet like stones from rice, and the crone, how I love the crone, how all this sadness builds like a raga to bring on rain, which the girl rushes into, of course, ripple of water lilies, siege of cranes, how all this joy leads to death. There are no spare rooms, is the point, in the film or real life. There are no spare rooms, so these men who've returned from the city are put in a tree to quarantine, a tree that strangles its hosts as it walks, munificent shade-giving banyan that hurls down roots as trunks in whose leaves God Krishna is domiciled. Krishna who talks good game about the temporality of the body while enjoying the bliss of so many pretty bodies, understood the material world as one huge inverted banyan. But as we're here in this reflection, why not enjoy the fruits? Why not leap from branch to branch like a hoopoe, which these men do, I suppose? Their good wives leave supplies at the base, rice and oil, cooking implements. It goes like this for days, the story of seven men in a tree surviving a 21st century pandemic. Men who say they're pleased not to pass on any bad city virus. And because the news is so full of horrors and counterfeits, can't we for once just succumb to the romance before us? Forget that the tree is moving, that one day its phantom limbs will tap against our door. Till then, can't we stand by our windows and stare at all the desolation and sweetness? 
Can't we adore the convoluted roots of our attachments, how they complete us? My God, how this living is a hymn. And that was Tree of Life from God at the Door, um, originally from Poets Respond. And just imagine for everybody at home, like being a poetry editor and you're just opening up your email and you read a poem like that out of nowhere that was just written in the last week. It's just amazing. Um, you know, lines like those, that last line there. And I, I want to talk a little bit about the, the act of creation for you, of, of actually making, like the process of making poems. Because what stands out, maybe more than anything in your poems, are how, how rich they are, full of content. Like you move through a lot of different subject matter and material. And then also there's this music that's just everywhere too. Um, you know, just like little lines, like um, how all this sadness builds like a raga to bring on rain. Things like that where just the, the music plays out too. And, and that poem was written in a, less than a week. <laughs> so what is your writing process like? Like how do you pack the poems so full of stuff and, and, and have the music, like, like what, is the, what is the work like? Um, and actually sitting down in front of the page or the computer and making a poem happen. I think um, there's sort of several versions of it. And usually this sense of wanting to um, do some exploration around a certain topic or theme. And and then, you know, there's, there's usually... Um, there's usually image, uh, a couple of strong images that are, or at least one. Uh, so for me, this poem began with the, the tree and these men and the story, you know. And in that way, I, I think I, I wrote so much last year and many of the poems in this book are kind of poems that responded to, to news items. And it was such a delight to discover that Rattle had this uh, ability, you know, this whole setup where you could... Right, you could send in a poem that you'd publish in a week because I think you don't really do that anywhere. You don't have this, um, you don't have the uh, bravery, I think, to send to other places a brand new poem. But here it's encouraged, you know, and this sense of maybe you'll get it right, and maybe the the force of this new this news is is going to allow you to to make something. And and I think for me, um, it's it's always about again, trying to find uh, why, why am I interested in the story? Where can I go with it? And then again, the surprising thing of how the poem leads. And obviously the idea of mortality is on your mind because we are in a pandemic, but in any case, I'm a poet, so mortality is always on my mind. So I think uh, this this question of how to you know, this, this sense of movement and, and then I you start to research and then you, you learn about the banyan tree and how it puts its roots down. Then you have almost this tree that's moving towards you and then that becomes an image and then it's like the tree is coming for you and this sense of until then you have to, you know, regard everything and, and there's going to be that tap of the root at your window and, and, and so the poem just builds, you know, and I, I, I think partly it's sort of, um, and it's not that every poem arrives like that. I think a lot of the things that I'm interested in, I, I go in and I do the exploration and I just go into a kind of quicksand and, and there's nothing to lift the poem out. And essentially you feel excited about the poem when you get that, either you discover it through some kind of research or one image leads to another and that opens up the poem somehow and it 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 
it, it creates movement. So I think, I guess I'm interested in movement in a poem and how it can jump from one thing to another and how there can be several movements. And again, I don't know if it's because I come from this, this background also of dance where I'm really interested in this idea of stillness, but also how to move across stage, how to, um, how to move the body through space. And then the poem also, it's like, how do you play with tempo and rhythm and pitch? And, and, and how, do, how can the poem, while being quite still on the page, have this sense of real, uh, you know, uh, leaps and bounds and all of that in it as well? So was a poem like that written in one sitting? Like, do you usually write like the bulk of a poem? Because um, I always find it difficult to go get back into a poem. Like a poem is almost like you're conjuring a space and then you can, you know, around you. And then it's really hard for me to get back into that same place. Like revision tends to be like little changes here and there. And, and it, 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 do, you, do you, or do you work on a poem like this over many days or many weeks or many months? Um, I think I work obsessively over a few days, but uh, in this one particularly, um, and essentially I I never really have a poem on a first draft. I think the first draft is just sort of like getting a lot of stuff out there, everything, you know, everything, and, and then sort of taking from that. And, and it's really about finding the right voice for each poem, because each poem of mine has a different voice, obviously, and there's the sense that um, I, I, I know I, I, and another poem that I wrote for Rattle, the, after a shooting at the maternity clinic in Kabul, that poem, I, I wrote it several times before I found the voice that, that felt honored the story in a way or or could hold that story in the way that I found I was finding it so difficult and and I think an earlier version which was standing very far away from that news story which was just incredibly tragic and so horrible and so full of horror actually and I think I was using language stripped away of horror because it was too much but then it was it was emotionally kind of dead, you know, and I thought this is not doing anything. And so I think it's a question of how close can you stand to something and how much does the story allow that? And these are particularly for poems that are inspired by by events in the news, which again, I feel like poetry has a has a chance to, um, to try and intervene in some way and try to be this alternative space where we can acknowledge all these things that are happening and and try to make some kind of sense of them but also try to transform them again into into something else um but of course not all poems are born that way you know um other poems are purely um from image or dream um but more and more a lot of the poems i would say are coming from from life around and maybe that's just because i have become super aware and super sort of unable to block out the life coming in through the news. And I think maybe a lot of people have that, uh, that sense of being actually bombarded by the, by the news, you know? Um, yeah, I think we are. I mean, there's, there's no way sort of getting outside of it, even if you, you know, don't watch the news, like I don't have TV or anything, um, but you still hear, you know, you still know what the main TV news story of the day is because everybody's talking about it. Um, 
let's hear another poem. Um, what do you want to read next? Um, okay. Uh, maybe I will read uh, Many Good and Wonderful Things. This poem is... Uh, this poem was a commission, and it was to commemorate the lives of Indian soldiers who served in the Great War, and that's over a million and a half Indian soldiers who served in the Great War. And I I read a book of letters um, that the soldiers wrote home, and so it was very much inspired by their letters. And so this poem has as a as an you know as a epigraph. Uh, a letter, an excerpt of a letter by a man called Kala Khan to Iltaf Hussein. And it was written December 25th, 27th, 1917. What more am I to say? Our kind-hearted Sarkar has done everything possible for us to protect us from the cold. We are each provided with two pairs of strong, expensive boots. We have whale oil to rub in our feet. And for food, we are provided with live Spanish sheep. In short, the Sarkar has accumulated many good and wonderful things for our use. Many good and wonderful things. History too has a hard time remembering the black waters they crossed, the small mountain villages emptied of men. Death was different then. History is always reinventing itself. Say what you will, but clouds have remained more or less the same. And leaving home is still leaving home, whether it's on a jet plane or climbing the steep path behind the house with a roll of bedding on your back. But to die in a faraway place whose name you can't pronounce for a king who isn't really yours is a sadness history still hasn't figured out. History has been pushing for republics since Lucius Junius Brutus. But men are hardy is the point, or bull-headed. And you'd think the glories of lice making mansions in their shirts was a paradise they could do without. That trench living would make them walk across the front with arms held high, saying, take me quick, I wish only to enter the realms of God. History tries not to be sentimental, although letters give things away. One fool longed for a flute. The world is burning, but he wants to play. Others were gluttons, mercenaries, spies. The wise asked for opium, but right sweets or dainties, they said. Otherwise, the package might not reach. History needs to forget the dead who cover the earth like heaps of stones, who write, Mother, is my parrot still alive? Mother, do not go wandering madly. Sometimes it feels as though the rain has been falling all your life and the girl you married will tire of tending the cattle. Do not worry. This is war where the women, like metaphors, are always steadfast and beautiful. In history's version, she sits under the people tree with your Victoria cross pinned to her sari. She has been waiting since 1918 and she is waiting still. So let us speak of love the way we always have by asking, have you eaten, darling? And what price did you get for the goats? And of course, I miss you 
but the earth is hard and the sky distant, and if I had wings, I'd fly to you. In Marseille, they said we looked like kings. History cannot really say what happens to men at war. So listen, at night I feed on stars. Do not ask about the cold. They have given me whale oil for my feet. And someone told me if I carried a piece of raw onion into battle, the bullets would not find me. That was um, many good and wonderful things from A God at the Door. And you mentioned this poem was commissioned, which um, doesn't <laughs> come up very often. Um, so I don't think anybody has read a poem that's been commissioned. At least they've never mentioned it. <laughs> so so what is it like to write a poem that's commissioned by somebody? Is it, does that make it much more difficult? It seems like it would. Like a lot of people have maybe written a poem for like a wedding or a funeral or something where you have to kind of... Um, you know, sort of write for yourself, but also other people at the same time? Um, how do you approach a poem that's commissioned? I have quite a few commissioned poems, actually. Uh, this one was commissioned by the Hay Festival, and it was to commemorate Armistice Day. And so they had poets from all the countries who fought in the Great War to get poets to sort of respond to other poets who had written during that time. And for me, because it was very difficult to actually find poets, um, Indian poets who had served in the war, there were poets who wrote about it, but most of the people who went were, you know, soldiers, peasants, uh, you know, uh, people from villages. And so the poems by sort of Tagore or Sarojini Naidu, they were there, but they were kind of at a distance. And I, I, I discovered these letters. And to me, they were written, you know, from the trenches in the way that, uh, you know, Secret Sassoon's poems or Wilfred Owen's poems. And so I felt like that brought me closer to the experience. And so there's a bit of research, I suppose, that goes into. And so obviously saying yes means that you're interested in a, in a, in a particular idea or commission. Um, but I was also commissioned by, um, um, you know, uh, uh, sort of uh, the MIT uh, magazine to write about the mind. And so I went into this sort of neuroscience rabbit hole and I found it fascinating. And I think basically, you know, I probably wouldn't, wouldn't go into read articles about neuroscience, even though I am interested in it, but it's sort of quite far from my usual academic research or my interest. And I've just sort of suddenly, you know, you go from that and then you you kind of again you 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 find these touchstones so you you realize that oh that's what i want to respond to so i wrote about a sex bot called hal and i just was so interested in the in the gender uh the way that even in this world like the gender is so uh, extremely displaced and so predominantly the sex bots are all female and da, 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 da. and so right I'm having a sex bot and he's you know uh, what's he gonna do for me and so <laughs> having fun again with this topic but also discovering I suppose so I think that I really like that idea of of commission poetry or 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 even you know if if somebody else doesn't commission you can commission yourself to write a poem to say well i'm really interested in x let me go and find out about it and i think uh it's a it's an interesting way to 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 change your poetic view or to just change direction um and it may not lead to a poem but i think often enough uh something always interesting comes up in in the exploration well i think we have um Maybe time to do both two more poems um, and maybe a little bit of talk in the middle. So let's do another poem. 
Should we, should, I, can, I can also just do one more poem, maybe. Uh, what do you think, Tim? Uh, I don't know. I like to get a lot of poems in. People always say that they okay. love the poems. And so um, I, wanna, okay. I like to get a good okay. number in. All right. All right. Okay. So um, this next poem is it's a little bit on the... It's, it's, it's a longer poem. Um, and it's called... It has taken many years um, to see my body. And uh, it's got seven parts it's sort of representing the seven chakras in the body um, so yeah I'll read them one by one it has taken many years to see my body one Muladhara if we could reconstruct the temple of our bodies we all know what we'd change first a little demolition work in the zone of belly some gutting around hips and bum, a coat of paint after weather stripping the face. I would kneel first at the hillocks of my breasts and pay obeisance, praise the dainty bud of squirrel's tail that made them. In the miniature painting of me, the background tree meant to symbolize my beauty would not be laden with pomegranates, kumquats perhaps, or plums. Two. Swadhisthana. The first room they gave me was a prison cell with a tattered divan and a dog named Akhmatova. I entered it a mole, proprietor, in love with solitude. Then they moved me to a castle, then a mud hut without a full-length mirror. At night, I walk the passages with head bowed and covered like those Rajput women in the miniatures striding out in rain to meet their lovers. Back in the room, I step out of my carapace, strip off the lobster tail and corset. Blood pumps and I stuff my knickers with what I find. Moss and hemp, delirium, accordions of linen. I bump into Louise Bourgeois carrying a basket of marble eggs. She looks at my breasts and says, you do not get anywhere by being literal except to be puny then hurries off to set up the return of the repressed. Three, Manipura. It would be a lie to say I didn't dream of largesse. Four, Anahata. As a girl, I enjoyed synchronized swimming like Alexander McQueen, even though I often forgot the routines. And one of the other girls said, you're so lucky or flat, meaning the opposite. Neither she nor I knew about the devastating shriek of Jane Birkin's tiny pets. We had not seen Donald Sutherland hover over Julie Christie for four long minutes and don't look now, two naked golden planks. We did not even know about the seashell-breasted women of certain Indian miniatures, small statured saplings squatting to squeeze water from their hair to feed a thirsty crane, blouse hitched up the bee-stung slopes while feeding antelope. We had been prepared only for the giant heaving smother of Ajanta's Apsaras or Silk Smita for decades of backaches. Thanks, I said. Yeah, thanks. Five, Vishuddha. So when I find the lump all these years later, my first thought is that I should have been spared this ignominy after all the hum of pancake, itty, bitty, a stone in this, really? Six, Ajna. 
In the room I've been given now, the walls are made of glass. Outside is the desert and a city, beyond that the sea. A construction site below has been abandoned. So many meticulous rectangles arranged like open graves waiting to be filled. Seven, Sahasrara. One day at sunrise, you come across your body and greet it as though it were a guest or traveler. You bathe its legs and sprinkle it with sandalwood and rose water. You may even have to protect your eyes with oversized sunglasses like those pilgrims who can't withstand directly the gaze of the deity. You will enter the inner chamber, this final doorway in the infinity of doorways, and there will be no mediator, no one to collect money or say a prayer, just a tapestry of virgin wool hanging on a washing line with wooden pegs. You walk toward it in devotion, touch it all, it touch it in all its fraying places, bring it to your chest, starving and full. And that was, it has taken many years to see my body from a God at the door. And um, one thing I wanted to ask, just one last question, then one last poem, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. You know, as a dancer, um, what is the relationship between dance and poetry? Because I've noticed just over the years doing a lot of reading series and things like that, that that the best poets and performers of poetry tend to, it sorts of be a dance. Like even if it's just a foot tapping, you can kind of look under the and the podium and see that they're like tapping along and doing this little dance with their body as they read. And um, what is it? that What is that relationship between the body and dance and, and poetry and how it all comes together for you? I, I think it's so right. I've, I've noticed that too. I always see poets, they keep time. They keep time in a way. That foot tapping is a way of keeping time and the poem is holding time in a certain way. And I feel like our bodies hold time in a certain way. So the relationship is actually a relationship with time. Um, and, and as a dancer, you know, um, the, the exploration is through sort of either an improvisation or a fixed choreography. And there's this movement within this space and time sort of dynamic. Uh, and you're again, exploring along the sense of diagonal or straight, or will you turn around? And, 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 and all of it is the sense of where are you going to place yourself and with that imagined audience, or are you dancing by yourself in the theater, in a rehearsal, which is, I think, one of the most sacred and beautiful moments, actually, even more than the the performing for the for the audience um and i think with the poem as well and and with the making of poetry it's always this relationship of of time and and you know even if we're not writing to a strict meter or rhythm and even if we are you know we we have that freedom from it the poem is still being held by by a certain time frame that that you hold again within your body and 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 that's why we when we speak it out we have to know when we're going to stop and when we want to race forward and 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 i think that these are intuitive things but they also come from um thinking a lot about about uh how we want language to build a world. And so when I think about my two touchstones, I would say they are body and language. And somehow they work together through the forms of poetry and through the forms of dance. 
but also together in some way, they both seep into each other. And it's about world making. I think it's poetry and, and dance for me are about world making, using the vocabulary that, that we have and the time space uh, sort of dynamic that we find ourselves in. And, and somehow even, I suppose, if we're being ambitious, wanting to transcend that and having that little lift off, that little out of body experience of ecstasy, right? Standing outside oneself um, that we can have either as making, but also as receiving um, with, with poems and with, with performance in general. Um, well, they uh, they take us out of ourselves, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's have one last experience like that, and one last poem. I think survival okay. is the last one you wanted to read, right? Yeah, yeah. This is the last poem in the book, um, Survival. Dear ones who are still alive, I fear we may have overthought things. It is not always a war between celebration and lament, now we know death is circuitous, not just a matter of hiding in the dark or under a bed, not even a slingshot for our loved ones to carry. It changes nothing. Ask me to build a wall and I will build it straight. When the end came, were you watching TV or picnicking in a field with friends? Was the tablecloth white? Did you stay silent or fight? I hope by now you've given up the fur coat, the frequent flyer miles. In the hours of waiting, I heard a legend about a woman who was carried off by winds, a love ballet between her and the gods, which involved only minor mutilations. How I long to be a legend, to stand at the dock and stare at this or that creature who survived, examine its nest, Marvel at a tusk that can rake the sea floor for food. Hope is a noose around my neck. I have traded in my rollerblades for a quill. Here is the boat, the journey, the camp. If we want to arrive, we must push someone off the side. It is impossible to feel benign. How many refugees does it take to build a mansion? I ask again. Shall we wait or run? Here is winter, the dense pack ice. Touch it. It is a reminder of our devastation, a kind of worship, an incantation. And that was Survival from A God at the Door. Tashani, thanks so much for being a guest and spending time with us today. I know it's a busy time of the year for you at the end of the semester and you're traveling back to India. So I really appreciate that you could spend an hour of your, your evening with us. It's just a pleasure hearing all these poems and, and your, your thoughts. Um, just really illuminating, too. Thank you so much, Tim. That was really fun. Thank you. Yeah, have a good night and safe travels. You too. Well, have a good day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's morning for you. Bye. Yeah, bye. Yeah, so that was Tashani Doshi, and her uh, newest book here is A God at the Door. This is the um, the uh, United States or North American version uh, from Copper Canyon Press. You can also get it from Blood Axe Books in the UK or India, um, but this is the Copper Canyon Press version that they so graciously sent me a copy of. Um, so please do pick up a copy of that. You can find more of Tashani's work at tashanidoshi.com. That's T-I-S-H-A-N-I. D-O-S-H-I dot com. So find God at the Door and um, her other books, um, Girls Are Coming Out of the Woods, which is wonderful too, and Countries of the Body. 
Um, also her fiction, which we didn't get to talk about much, but she writes uh, fiction as well. And a book of essays I think she has coming out too soon. And uh, now it's going to be time for our open lines. And we're going to have a special, trying to change something a little bit different. We're going to have the another bonus Poets Respond poem, a preview of Tuesday's poem coming up at um, at the top of the hour, I guess you'd say, at, at whatever time it is, about about 40 minutes from now. It's a poem about um, Robert Bly in memoriam of him. And I wanted to have a little bit more time to talk to the poet than we would given the longer poem that Jack Riddle had at the top of the show. So um, stay tuned for that in about 40 minutes. But we're going to go to open lines first. And then afterward, too, we'll have a little more time for open lines. Um, And so the prompt for this week was to... What was the prompt for this? Oh, yeah, it was to coin a word, then write a poem with your word as the title. That was the prompt for this week. And um, I'm going to let you know how to uh, submit a poem and share it if you would like. Um, let's see. There it is. So email your poem first to openmicatrattle.com. And the poem doesn't have to be about the prompt. It can be a news poem. It can be something you published recently and are proud of or something you just wrote this week and want to share. And it's an open line. So whatever you would like to do. Um, if we have time, we could do two poems. I'm not sure. It looks like we probably will, I think. Um, so maybe two poems if you uh, want or one poem is great, too. Um, so what you do is call me up either by Skype or phone. By Skype, it's Rattle Poetry, all one word. Just enter that into the search bar and say, um, hello, I will call you back when it's your turn. If you'd like to call in over the phone, the number is 818-850-7727. That's 818-850-7727. Just let it ring a few times, then hang up, and then that'll let me know that you want to be on, and I'll call you in the next hour or so when it's your turn. So uh, I'll be right back after getting up and stretching a little bit. Refresh your drinks, and I'll see you soon. And I'm back. Thanks for your patience. It was a little longer than normal because Facebook locked me out of Facebook. They said I was doing too many things too quickly. Um, But that was an hour ago, so I've been sort of worried that the stream wasn't working on Facebook. Um, but it is, so that's okay, and I seem to be back in. Um, hopefully hopefully, I didn't cut you off trying to get back into the live dashboard. Um, Facebook is just, I don't know, they had this update like months ago, and it's just been causing nothing but problems. Um, but I think everything is fine now. So let's do the open lines. And here the uh, prompt for this week, once again, was coin a word then write a poem with your word as the title. It was a sort of a spontaneous last second prompt when I realized we didn't have any in the list, uh, but Megan's, Megan wrote some more so that we got plenty more for later. Um, but uh, so my word is a word, I, I've been always thinking I wanted to coin this word anyway. And so my word is, um, what would we say? I guess you'd say Erig Freud, which is a, a, a version of like Schudenfreud, which would be, of course, Schudenfreud is um, pleasure and pain and someone else's pain. And um, Erig Freud would be wrong joy instead of uh, pain joy. And Erig Freud is pr- the pleasure of being proven wrong, which is something, uh, it's, a, it's a trait that I think we should all kind of try to cultivate because um, there's something great about being proven wrong and changing your worldview and learning something new just because what you thought to be true didn't turn out to be true after all. And uh, I think that's something we should embrace and enjoy and appreciate. So this is my um, Erig Freud poem. Earring Freud, noun, the joy of being proven wrong. 
Self-assured by his argument, he leans back in the faux leather chair so far that both of the legs left supporting him snap at the joints from the weight and the angle he'd deployed, and down he goes, tumbling through cartoon clouds, a patchwork, farms and houses and farmhouses pinwheeling below, past the indifferent airplanes, the bewildered birds, a face full of bugs when he's finally hit by the floor's view of the ceiling, and the new bruise blooming at his hip, which he'll keep poking all week for the pleasure of the pain of now knowing. There's my Erig Freud poem, if I'm saying that right. And um, I am 100% German, so I'm allowed to coin German words, I think, even though I don't speak the language. Uh, let's see. So, let's see. And, and Megan didn't have a poem this week. It's, it's weird. We used to write poems every Sunday morning, so doing the early show makes it tough. And I happened to, I think a dog barking next door woke me up a little early, so I got to write that. Um, Megan managed to sleep in a little bit, so she didn't get to write one this week. But next week, we'll get in sort of a schedule of writing them a little bit ahead of time, I think. But let's see what you have. We have um, several poets lined up. We have, um, let's call up instead, oh, Spartacus is here. Spartacus hasn't been on in a while. Then we'll call up, we'll call up whoever that was, AJH. We'll call up, uh, them up back in a minute. Hello. Hello, Spartacus. How are you doing? It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while. Nice to see you again, Tim. Yeah, it's so great to see you. Hopefully, maybe this time works a little better for you. That's one of the things I was thinking, was that um, this time of day is much better for Europe. Yeah, absolutely, yes. Mm -hmm. So what do you have yeah. that you'd like to share with us today? Um, I've got a poem about Cape Town. Um, a few weeks ago in BBC, there was an article about um, Cape Town. Um, in which they are trying to save water by cutting down trees. Oh, yeah. And, mm -hmm. um, I found it interesting um, because, in a way, there was also this conference in Glasgow, mm -hmm. and I expected something like um, something like a movement that would support that conference. And what I can see is just um, um, carrying on with the same way. Yeah, yeah, the conference is definitely. Uh, what did uh, what did Greta Thunberg say? Um, blah blah blah. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, I, and cutting I totally down. I agree with her. Yeah. I, I support her one hundred percent. Yeah, and cutting down trees to save water just doesn't seem like a, a solution to much. But uh, let, let's hear this poem, extempore poem for the people of Cape Town who cut down trees to save water. Go ahead, whenever you're ready. Mm -hmm. Can you hear me? my city of Cape Town, when you cut down trees. My deaf city, you are a scream of trees that embrace water. Cape Town, you are a floating Titanic crossing the sea with the silence of a murderer who searches for a safe space on earth. My gigantic city, let me read to you poems with my microscope for gold. Let me reveal to you poetic microscopic world that exists but people don't know. Can you see my small poem? It dreams of stories about Earth welcoming future people. Others may see the absence of trees without leaves in winter or an empty steep slope without any waving petals to attract, attract pollinators in spring. But I can see water molecules inviting trees and bluebells in future cities made from poetry. Can't you see? 
Uh, excellent public uh-huh. spirit coach. Thanks for so much for sharing that. And, and it's always wonderful to see you. I'm glad you could call in. Nice to see you again, Tim. Yep. And yep. thanks for the lovely evening tonight. Yeah, have a good night. You too, bye-bye. That was Spartacus Anagnostris with an uh, extempore poem for the people of Cape Town who cut down trees to save water. Thanks for sharing that, Spartacus. Let's see. I'm gonna, well, let's try up uh, AJH again and see if that works this time. Hey, Alex, I think this is... Uh, let's see, we hear you this time. There we go. That's there we go. Excellent. Yeah, I'm so glad. Thanks for joining us. I'm glad I could get it to work. The, uh, the camera's not on this time. But uh, oh. if you want to push that button, maybe. There we go. There you come. There you go. Perfect. Devices helps matters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we hear you and see you now at the same time, which is great. So, uh, so what did you want to share with us? I, I love. I see what the word already. Fun? Potatoing is your word. So, um, what do you want to say about that? So this is. I'd like to say that I came up with a bit entirely, but it's a joke I've read with a couple of friends where it's uh, kind of in a similar vein of the, creating the term adulting that uh-huh. people have around now, where it's this kind of. We have this kind of belief we can put ing on any noun and use it to be its own verb. And so we kind of have played with that on multiple uh, fashions, and this is that one. Very cool. I'm looking forward to hearing this. Go ahead whenever you're ready. All righty. Just a second. Ben Bailey talks about the joy of a bed with perfect comfy. He's right. But on this cold Sunday morning where nature still can't make up its mind on which seasons it wants to make happen today, Sadly, spring is not an option. The sheets of my queen bed will live on for a few more hours as an even greater tussled mess I've had in one hand, music playing from the other side. I embrace the perfect comfy. I should be up and about. I definitely need to clean lunch or, who am I kidding, breakfast would be a good plan. I should think about doing more than thinking about hitting the gym. But on this chilly, quiet morning, when I have just returned home, from a day's full day's worth of shenanigans with friends and serendipitously timed love with family, I contemplate the shape I'm in, round, and decide that the beige knit blanket with the snags here and there are reminiscent of those spuds we ate over the holiday, and I think perhaps they have it right. Today, D&D podcasts it is, maybe pizza. <laughs> That's great. I love potato wing. That's such a great word. I hope uh, I hope people start using it. It's it's there for the world. <laughs> well, that's a great contribution. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. It was uh, Alex Hines with potatoing on a Sunday morning, which is what we're all doing, I guess, right now, right? We're potatoing here. Um, okay, so we have a new uh, first-time caller, I think 236. Um, let's see. And let's call. Let's go to Nivedita because it is getting late in... Um, in India right now. So let's call up Nivedita. I kind of forgot about the daylight savings goofiness that we have here. So it's it's not as nice in India as it would have been over the summer. But anyway. Hey, Nivedita. Great to see you. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It, it, um, um, let's see. Try to get this situated. So so what do you want to share? I think you, you probably have two poems um, for us, do you? As always. Yeah. Okay. Let me, uh, I got to get this right. Just get bear with me, everybody. There we go. Okay, so um, so what are the the two poems? What do you want to do first? Um, either one that you have up first is fine for me. <laughs> okay. Um, let's see. The first one I happen to see is the prompt poem, which is fabulous. Another great word. See, this is why I want to do the prompt. I just wanted like 
make up some new words and and if we if any of them like become widely used then we'll know how influential the rattlecast is that's my goal so we'll see <laughs> so this is basically a mix between fabulous and glorious mm -hmm. and fabulous fabulous i love it okay let's go ahead whenever you're ready with it okay far beyond the window shine a million lights some small some large all of varying sides and it is to one of these lights i make known my desire to be true to me myself and my own far beyond the window shines a bright light golden and happy and of such a large size and it is in the presence of this light that my dream comes true i no longer care about your opinions or you oh what a lovely feeling it is to be free of you if not physically then at least in my mind no longer will my days and nights be twilight blue, but a fabulous technicolor of a very special kind. I love that fabulous. Thanks for sharing that, Nivy. And uh, so, so the other poem is a news poem, I assume. Uh -huh. And I'll pull that up right now. And so, so introduce this. What is this one about? Um, so there was this lady from the UK who'd gone on a vacation to, I think, Orlando, and while she was coming back, a lizard from there accidentally snuck into her suitcase and was found only on arrival in England. And she felt sorry for the poor thing because it came from a nice, warm, sunny place. <laughs> and then it sort of shivered in the cold winter of England. But now it's doing fine because the RSPCA came in and took care of it. So the lizard's healthy. But then, I mean, we're also scared to travel now. And look at look at this brave dude just, just <laughs> snuck into a suitcase, no airfare, nothing, and then waltzed halfway around the world. That's true. Yeah, I didn't think of it that way. But um, yeah, that is one brave lizard riding, <laughs> riding that flight. Uh, go ahead, whenever you're ready to travel free. Travel free. There was once a lizard named Larry who wanted to see the world and did not wish to tarry. So he crept into the suitcase and traveled to a whole new place. Oh, to just be able to travel like this visionary. COVID? What's that? I will take care of myself. To stop me, don't you dare. Now is the time to travel before the whole world unravels. So I'll see you from the other side of elsewhere. That was excellent. Mm -hmm. Travel free. Thanks so much, Nivian. And thanks for staying up with us. Uh, I know it's getting late there. No worries at all. And just a small thing. There's this sort of project that Google Books in association with Cleveland eHealth were doing in India. So you had to submit between five and 20 poems. And if the editor liked it, then they would publish it on Google Books as an ebook. Oh, cool. So I just sent in random 10 poems in. It's oh. called Dawn and they sort of published it. So if you would like, you could just go to Google Books and type in my name, Nivedita Karthik, and you will find it. Oh, that's just, great. Just could, you, could you put the link like in the comments um, on YouTube or whatever? We'll definitely yeah, do that. On yeah, the we'd love to see it, I'm sure. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank, thank you, Tim. It's lovely talking to you too. And I think a lot of what Tishani said today resonated with me. She comes from Chennai. I'm from Chennai. So I think that that India Connect is definitely there as well. So oh, that's, and being a dancer, I think everything she said about the rhythm of the words on the page and the rhythm of the dance, everything is, is so true. Yeah, well, I think there's just a deeper truth to everything she has to say, you know, because I resonate with it, too, having nothing in common. I'm not from from China. I'm not from I'm not a dancer. I've got don't don't look at me dance. But um, <laughs> but still, the dance is there in the poems, I think. I think it's sort of something that, like, I think I mentioned that as humans, we all have an innate rhythm and nature within us. And I think that sort of comes up. Different people express it in different ways, but 
if one person starts sort of expressing themselves using rhythm, everybody just joins in. It's it's sort of human nature to do it that way, which is, I think, where things like flash mobs are so prominent and everybody can take part in things like that. Yeah, great point. Well, well, thanks for joining in and staying up with us, Divya. It's always great to see you. Thank you, Tim. It was lovely talking to you. Yep. Have a nice Sunday. Yep. Good night. Good night. That was Nivita DeCarthic with two poems, fun as always. Uh, Richard Westheimer. Hello, Richard. How are you doing today? Good. You caught me looking up a map of Chennai province to, or Chennai to uh, uh, look more closely into where Nivea is from. Yeah, it, it's a, a fascinating place. I was reading about it, um, you know, learning about Tishani and, and where she lives. She lives on like at the coast and there's this whole like stray dog story that she has. This is really cool, which we didn't get to. But um, but yeah, it's a, it's a cool place. It was, it, was a, it was a terrific interview as usual. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Tashani is is the real deal. So it's just cool to have her on. Um, so, what did you want to share with us, Richard? Um, I sent you a sort of prompt poem. I'll, I'll qualify it by saying I did not have nearly the vivid. Uh, it's not even imagination. Yeah, I guess it's imagination for these neologisms. So <laughs> I, I sort of started with one, and the forced it into the poem but the poem changed and so it'll get a new title at some yeah. point well, well as long as the prompt takes you somewhere that's all that matters yeah and that that's that's what happened so temporarily i'll use the word but it'll probably come out <laughs> okay and and i was responding a little bit at least i found myself in writing it you had talked about james tate in one of your um um uh workshop sessions mm -hmm. and i was thinking about poems like that when i wrote this one so you'll find that it's awkwardly not like anything I've written and sent you before. Interesting. Like well, that's it, always go, fun. It, yeah. it goes over a page break, which I've never done before. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm excited to hear this. Let's go. Okay. Here we go. Uh, my very unholy day or lessons from the book of Dan. Dan talked to cashiers like they were people. Hey, how you doing? He'd ask all friendly like, and he meant it. He wanted to know how Susie or Bonnie Lou or Thelma were doing, and they'd smile and chat while ringing up our order, which would be a six-pack and a copy of the New York Review of Books or Sports Illustrated. And we'd go back to Dan's and talk about how Magic told Michael to pass the damn ball, or how Jeffersonian agrarianism was really communalism if you ignored the slave thing, and how Dan met Lowen, his sweetheart, when he was hitchhiking to visit Denise Levertoff, but never made it because when he stayed over at Bob's place in NYC, uh, Dan and Lowen disappeared for a week in Bob's back room, got to know each other real well, and emerged ready to get married. Dan made his friends my friends, all the buddies he studied with at Catholic high school back in the day when they taught Latin and the great books in Catholic schools, and all his friends thought Dorothy Day was a hero, and every one of those guys and their wives treated me like a brother. Each was smart and good and raised their kids right and welcomed strangers into their homes to stay as long as they needed, including me. And Bob sends me woodcut prints of the Virgin Mary he cuts and inks every year. And they are beautiful, but they are of the Virgin Mary, who I know is someone important, but not really. And every year he invites me to Margie's annual surprise birthday party. Surprise, because you never know who's going to show up. 
I once went and hung out with some of those Catholic boys, now men, but went to bed early. Um, went to bed early because I didn't know most of the other hundred or so folks there. I'd eaten a lot of Margie's Christmas cookies, which had tons of butter in them, which messed me up for a few days, but they were so good. So when we got on the Zoom surprise party last night and I was feeling left out and more than a little put out that all these folks talked about was Christmas this and show me your Christmas that and Christmas sweaters and Christmas wreaths and Christmas stockings and Christmas trees and ornaments and lights and funny Santas and sleds, even though the Christmas was a month away, they acted as if everyone made Christmas and I wanted to show them my menorah, but it looked pretty pitiful just this little tarnished thing covered in candle wax. So I didn't and felt like this was a very unholy day that made me feel so shitty. And then I asked Margie if she had cookies to service. Ha ha, we were on Zoom because that was the only Christmas thing I knew to talk about. And she left her screen and came back with a plate full of beautiful Linzer tarts and gingerbread and thumbprints and crinkles. And Margie seemed so happy to talk about her cookies and I wanted to jump right through the screen and give her a hug. And so I asked her, hey, how are you doing? And she told me that times are pretty rough, told me about her chemo. And I'm glad she has Christmas and I'm glad she has Bob and glad Bob has Dan. And I feel kind of bad that I feel so bad about Christmas. Oh, that was great. I love that, Richard. Wonderful poem. And I love the way you, you experiment with different styles all the time. It's really cool to see. But that, that one really uh, takes me away somewhere. I loved it. OK, thanks, Tim. Appreciate you. Yeah. Did you want to read another one or is that? Uh, no, I, I, th I think a 500 word poem should suffice for my. <laughs> Sounds for my, good. Well, it's, it's always, tour. yeah, it's always great to see you, Richard. Have a great rest of your Sunday. Yeah, thanks, Tim. You too. That was uh, Richard Westheimer with, um, I lost the title, The Unholy Day, is that what it's called? Of My Very Unholy Day. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Richard. All right, let's try Kashiana again. We'll see if, um, see if it'll work this time. Hi, Kashyana. You are live on the air with the Rattlecast. Uh, did you want to share a poem? Thank you for calling me. Uh, appreciate it. Yes, I do want to share a poem. Do you have my email? I do. Actually, there's two poems here, I think. Architecting Prayer and Country. That's right. Yeah, so um, so what do you want to, how do you want to introduce these? Uh, yeah. And can you hear me fine first? Just? Yeah, yeah, we can. You, you sound great. Perfect. Thank you for the session with Kishani. It was absolutely breathtaking. It's going to make make my week, month, uh, how many days I can thrive on just listening to this. So appreciate having her on. Yeah, I really do too. I was really I've been looking forward to this uh, ever since. Uh, really, since the first time I read that one poem of hers, the the tree of yes. life, um, that just everything sort of came out of it. Just great. Yep, I'll go with country first. Um, the, the, that's the that's a response poem to to news. Um, the, it's not necessarily just about a specific news item. This really is, it, the focus of it was the hardliners, uh, our so-called saffron police in India, continue to create a religious divide between Hindus and Muslims using country or motherland as the anchor point for for uh, bringing, bringing that to the forefront. But the specific news item really that triggered uh, this was about migrant Muslim workers that are in the capital city of Delhi for various construction jobs and 
so on and so forth. And they have to use open public land for prayer because mm-hmm. prayer sites that are formal are few and far between, right? So they have to travel a lot. And so they then generally tend to use just open public land for prayer. Um, and how the Saffron police or so-called vigilants uh, decided to make that a big protest item uh, because they felt they were overtaking the public land and started to create a mob and some riots and so on and so forth. So again, nothing. while this is focused really on that particular news story, uh, it could be any country, right? We know what what we've gone through here in the U.S. as well in the past couple of years. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And thanks for sharing that background about it too. That really, really illuminates it. That's not a story that I'd heard before myself. Um, I'll go with country first. Okay, Give go me ahead. one moment, please. Yeah. Just bringing it up. Sorry about that. Just one moment. All right. Um, country. When did you stop listening to your own, become unwilling to look up into our eyes, look away from your own opiate limbs, Look away from birthmarks on your skin. Look away from the falling blisters of your eyes. When did you become so lazy that you let the claws of your feet burrow deep, trapped into your own blemished ground, unmoving even when being eaten alive? By the blooming anguish of your people, by odors from floating carcasses of your soul, by the waves that beat against the sunken scales of your ghosts, by sordid drippings of pleas fleeing your own mouth. At this very moment, I am a lighthouse standing in watch. I am carving my solitary light into ripples, each ripple a caterpillar pupating a butterfly pulsating to the panchkritya of Tandav dance, its wings flapping to the spitting fire of a trillion monarchs, unwilling to diapause until you listen to the whistling of their alliterative song. They will circle you into an orchestrated garland, evacuating your cauldron of prayers and pledges until you hear their buzzing silence. They will drink incessantly of your matted milk feed. They will churn intemperate until you hear anew. For if you don't, an apocalypse is coming closer and closer towards your shore. You have time now to gaze outwards and listen to act before being engulfed into the whirlpool of growing stillness to become the country we knew to become the country we knew. Uh, excellent. An important poem there, uh, Cassiana. And, and it, it does seem like it's the kind of thing that's going on everywhere in the world, this sort of this sort of re-emergence yeah. of tribalism, I would call it. And I think, I don't know, I, I always think that it probably has something to do with global globalization, you know, like we're all so connected in the world, so vast, that we're sort of desperate yeah. for some kind of smaller tribe to cling to. And I think there's this rise of that yeah, because absolutely. of it everywhere, it seems like. That's right. Unfortunate, but true. Yeah. Um, um, so the, what's the second poem? I, we have plenty of time. So um, if you'd like to share okay. this too, Architecting Power, or Prayer, I should say. What's that about? Uh, yep. Yeah. Uh, I, I pulled this out of, uh, I have a new collection coming up. Uh, it's called Woman by the Door. Uh, it's funny that the title is similar uh, to what you just had with 
Pichani's book, and it's coming out with Apprentice Press House uh, early 2022. This is a pro- poem from there, but the reason I pulled it out was uh, everything that you just discussed with Tishani about poem and prayer and pilgrimage. Well, that's excellent. Yeah, and congratulations on the book. You'll keep you posted about that when it comes out. Maybe we'll have you as a guest for the, a full show if you'd Perfect. like. Perfect. I would um, love it. I will look forward to it. So, um, so architecting, architecting prayer. Architecting prayer. Yeah. Yeah. Architecting prayer. I try and find you in the words I say, those sent into the brass of the night, I lean into grief, edge of a mother's sob, where paths of prayers wait to be found. I heed the solace that sits on treetops, even on nights that spirits laugh aloud. I become restless, like the river bend, stuttering quietly into broken rivulets. I wish to be the gilded revelry on wings as sparrows gather their humble worms. I wonder about golden dandelions with fingertips tenderly weeping in the wind. I listen to the contradictory voices focusing on melancholy of 17th year. Cicada nymphs, I intend to beckon my body as it steps into the trapdoor of luscious language. Oh, I, I love that ending. Prayer. Yeah, I love that that trap door of luscious language. Thanks so much for sharing that, um, Kashyana. Thank you, Tim, for having me. Yeah, yeah, always Take a pleasure. Care. Talk to you soon. Yep, have a good Sunday. Bye. 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 It was Kashyana Singh with Architecting Prayer, and the first poem was Country. And now let's see. We have five minutes. Let's do a. Let's go do a back in time a little bit and share this poem, and then we'll be set up at the right time for um, um, for Tuesday's poet, a preview of the Poets Respond poem with Kurt Lux. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, so I, I went back and looked at what the, you know, this week, last year poem was, and it was really interesting to see this one. This was, um, you know, last year school was, at least in the United States, school was starting again, but through Zoom. And so people were really trying to adapt to Zoom school. And and so are we. Like my kids were up in their room every day, with laptops that the computer actually gave out. I'm not, I'm not sure if that's how it worked everywhere, but um, um, and and so that's how school was, and it was adapting to that. And the weird thing is now that school's back to normal, I really miss it. Like I I find I find homeschool very tempting. It was just great having them home all the time and getting to like take a hike with them every day and teaching them things about the world myself and then you know, playing some sports in the front yard and all that stuff we got to do because we had so much time. Um, of course, I'm very fortunate to work from home and be able to do that. But um, so I kind of miss the homeschool era. But at the time, it was very challenging, very challenging, too, for teachers, um, especially. So there's, there was a this article here, distance learning. Uh, I think it's too big on the screen, but distance learning not working. Here's some strategies to try is the article from the Washington Post. Um, that was linked to, but it was just something that everybody was talking about. Um, how as a teacher, you learn this technology, how to keep students engaged, how to, how to keep your kids engaged and, and how difficult it is. And so, um, this is Diane Thiel with this poem and I'll read her note, which is really short. Um, Diane said, um, not much has appeared in poetry reflecting this particular type of high noon but it is today's reality in so many homes. And so this is a poem by Diane Thiel about that situation, the um, trying to homeschool your kids. 
High noon at the remote corral. A scream from the back room, which usually means the internet died. And I come running with a hot spot, hoping to bring it back to life. All the late risers in town now online too, maybe working, but likely just turning on Netflix, bank robbing our bandwidth. But this time it's a 45 question test, completed on time, only to be erased by a keyboard shortcut, a lethal combination of control P and cancel. While across the house, the Barry Sachs, making it clear that this homestead is not big enough for dueling instruments, though we never realized how far even the little flute carries in these competing classes. And now another blue screen of death, the crashing websites not scalable enough for this scale of new users, as the noon hour looms and Trumpet starts having a showdown with Spanish. The parents always asking, are you muted? As nearly appropriate expletives erupt, forgetting the day of the accidental unmuting of, this is so boring, accidentally evaluating the poor teachers who are trying their best, class chats rolling in out of sync, the whole rhythm of learning out of sync, the house a machine for many months now, worrying in all corners, and worrying about the system giving an F until an item is graded, as if we needed more stress. And now the youngest moving to the porch for PE and maybe some stress relief, doing line dances with no line, it only dawning on him yesterday that this dance is usually done with others, hence the meaning of line dance, while back inside, another child left behind in the tunnel, or is it a collapsing mine shaft, between the meet and the breakout room. While I try to appear on my own screen at noon, looking calm and having it all under control, trying to arrange as much asynchronous as possible, which thankfully works well for these classes, since when I do unmute, there is usually a trumpet, sax, clarinet, flute, piano, or one nearly appropriate curse or another in the background, waving in meetings, smiling at some heads that I'm sure don't understand. And I don't complain anywhere, except maybe in this poem, having learned to be thankful, always thankful that things aren't worse, however worse they get, in this new world where what worked yesterday might not necessarily work tomorrow. And then one I haven't heard before, but it seems about right, a holler from the kitchen table announcing, I can't see anyone else on screen anymore, but now there are hundreds of me. Yeah, so that was great. That was uh, Diane Thiel with uh, High Noon at the Remote Corral. And I, I, I kind of forgot, but I love how much, uh, you know, all the, all the background stuff that she added to that recording. Uh, really fun poem. I'm glad to share that and glad to capture that moment, which is one of the things we want to do with Poets Respond is to, is to make a catalog of, um, of life and through poetry. And so that sort of records that, that little era right there, that mini, you know, segment of time, which hopefully won't come back because it really was difficult for a lot of kids and parents, I know. Um, so let's call up um, the next poet and uh, Kurt Lukes or Lux, I think, um, has a poem about Robert Bly that will be coming out um, in memoriam of him on Tuesday. So let's call up Kurt right now. Hey, Kurt, sorry about that mix-up. It was all on my end. Some, I think maybe like my Skype had been open too long or something something froze or broke on my computer, but we're good now. And we see a great 
Thanks for joining Jake, us. Uh, yeah. It's the rise of the machines. <laughs> <laughs> it is. So, um, so your hey. poem is going to be on Tuesday, um, which was kind of, I should have read poems on Wednesday last week and put it as a Thursday poem, but I messed up because I forgot that I had that open. <laughs> and, um, oh, I think I hear myself. Um, can you mute whatever you're listening? I, I'm sorry. It was okay. the rise of my mistaken machine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no problem. But anyway, so we have this poem about Robert Bly, who who obviously meant very much to you and a lot of people. We had a bunch of poems submitted for, for Robert, um, who passed away um, two weeks ago today, actually. And um, yes. so so um, I just want to, before you share this poem, can you explain a little bit about what Robert Bly meant to you and um, and why his, his passing meant so much, too, and, and how he got you into poetry, which is what you talk about in the poem? Well, yes, he, he influenced me first as a poet when I was discovering poets for myself. I had been raised in a household that was filled with many kinds of deprivation, neglect, and abuse. But one of the saving graces of it was my parents had hundreds, maybe thousands of books, and they had very good taste in books and in literature. And um, they had a lot of poetry. And poetry was always in the air. My mother would recite it when she was doing housework. Um, they had a lot of record albums for people at the time. I think about 500 of them. And almost no music. It was almost all spoken word, you know, cast recordings from Broadway shows, from the work of James Thurber, stuff like that. So Dylan Thomas, Yeats, Frost, a bunch of others. And um, I don't think they had any books by Bly himself, but they had a magazine called Chicago Choice, or just Choice, which was the second most important poetry magazine coming out of Chicago after Poetry Magazine. <laughs> and it was edited by John Logan. And they had some back issues of it. And when I got into poetry at about the age of 14, when I got into it for myself, I picked up an issue of the magazine. It was number three. It was actually this one. Oh, wow. This is the actual issue that my parents had. Oh, which wow. I... <laughs> so it was a magazine of poetry and photography, and it was very good at both. And um, that issue contained about half a dozen poems by Bly that impressed me, but it contained a very important essay by him called A Wrong Turning in American Poetry, which is essentially his critique of the overly bookish, rationalist, removed from reality, let's all stand in museums and write poems about paintings because W. Auden made it look so good and so easy and in fact wrote a great poem. Nothing against ekphrastic poems at all, but the, the sense that poetry wasn't alive and in the middle of life and dealing with truths, kind of like you're trying to do on Poets Respond. And, the, and his essay was very harsh he, and and later he admitted it was somewhat unfair and also mean, and he somewhat re retracted when he reprinted it in a book, this book, mm -hmm. a book of essays about American poetry. He somewhat apologized, but he didn't really take it all back either. And it, it just impressed me. He, had, he listed so many poets who he thought were not so much that they had written bad poems, but T.S. Eliot and Pound, yeah, they're great, but they're not a model. For someone trying to write poetry today, you can't follow them. It would be death to try to follow them. Oh. He had nice things to say about uh, Wallace Stevens and others, but mostly he focused on other world poets. 
and particularly those from uh, Latin American countries and Spain. So we talked about Pablo Neruda, Federico Garcia Lorca, Antonio Machado, um, Juan Ramon Jimenez, Cesar Viejo, Jorge Luis Borges, all of these poets, many of whom he then translated and uh, books of his translations of them were published. And so he led me away from unfruitful furrows to follow in poetry into more fruitful ones. That's interesting. So he kind of, and he was also part, he was among a group of poets who had, who were freeing poetry up from its formalism. Metrical formal poetry was the only thing being done, you know, in the Kenyan review and a whole bunch of other places. And there were poets that kind of aligned themselves with Blyer with his mission. James Wright was one. W.S. Merwin was another, Lewis Simpson, Donald Hall, um, who either abandoned completely or largely pulled back from writing formal metrical verse and started writing this more free verse, inspired largely by this these poets that they all jointly admired from around the world. So it was kind of an opening up. Uh, it was a very interesting movement to me because it was very different from what I was being taught in school. And that was meaningful to me. Yeah, and, and then um, the the first line of your poem here is "All my fathers are dead now," which is really what stands up, you know, off the page. And so, so on a you know, outside of the poetry, on like an emotional level, um, what was it about Bly that made him feel like a father? Um, he was one of my poetic fathers. You know, any poet that ever wrote something that I admired or loved would certainly be one. And they could, I guess, I have poetic mothers as well. But um, he was one of the main ones who pointed the way, both in his his verse, but also in his critiques, you know, extreme or not, that there was value in his critiques because he was putting his finger on some things that were, in fact, rather stifled and dead in American verse at the time. Um, and that was helpful to me. I, I didn't want to have to write, you know, The Wasteland <laughs> Or even even something I really loved, like sailing to Byzantium or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just, it helped liberate my own view of what poetry could be and how I maybe could contribute in some small way to this art. And then fast forward some years later, the reason I talk about his fathering and bringing my own father into it, years later when I was about to become a parent, I was trapped in a cage of my own making in a very bad marriage. Don't ask me why I wanted to become a parent at that time, but I did. Um, And I knew that I was not prepared because my own parents gave me no role model to follow. Mm -hmm. And I had earlier dismissed Bly's writing on the men's movement and the mythopoetic and, you know, men beating drums in the forest and trying to get in touch with, you know, the mother and all of that. And, um, I had ridiculed it. I had compared it to Pound's theories on, on monetary matters. It's like, well, they're great. They translate. They're bringing world poetry in. They've written some great poetry. Fortunately, Bly didn't try to follow Mussolini. That would have been <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a, big, a big mistake. But that, like Pound, he was kind of a crank. Only his crankisms were psychological theories and Pound's were in economics. Well, fast forward to that time when I needed to deal with the upbringing I had been given Mm -hmm. and the holes in my own mind about what a father should be. 
And then Bly's material on that turned out to be very helpful to me. So he, he was then helpful in a whole different way and on a different level um, than just with his verse. Does that it, make sense? It, it really does. And it's always so interesting to hear. That's why I love having, um, you know, tributes to poets after they pass away and then having you know, getting to talk to people who um, those poets meant so much to um, for sort of insight into into what it was about them that made them so powerful and memorable and important. And um, so I'm really glad to hear um, your account of and your experience with Robert Bly. And then this poem, why don't you go ahead and read it? This is All My Fathers, which will be the Tuesday poem. Sure, thank you. All of My Fathers for Robert Bly, 1926 to 2021. All of my fathers are dead now. If I have any further questions, there is no one to ask, no one whose answer might matter to me. But then it was you who taught me that the deader a father is, the more he lives inside us, and the more urgent it becomes to build a room for him in the house of the psyche, lest we be ruled unknowingly by a monster chained and howling in the basement, or a madman hiding in the attic, eating dead spiders and dust. Thanks to you, I built such a room for my earthly father, and so reclaimed the life and light and joy he had stolen from his seven children. Only then was I able to follow you and all of my real fathers through the open door in the soul to the beauty of the word. From you, I also learned that the good father contains a mother made of earth and air and fire and water, but that's a story for another day, perhaps another life. Right now, I need to revisit the room I built for you, the one lined with books and lit by a single round window facing the sun and looking out on new snow and silence. Yeah, just a touching poem in its sincerity. Kurt, thanks so much for joining us and sharing uh, your experience of Robert Bly so that people can um, you know, get to know him a little more and get to know his work now. Um, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Tim. Yeah, my pleasure. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you. Yeah, so that was Kurt Lukes with uh, All of My Fathers, which will be the poem uh, of the day on Tuesday. So look for that to come out. And now let's go back to the open lines and see who... Um, we have about 15 minutes left, so we should be able to get to everybody we haven't yet. Hopefully everybody's still around. And uh, oh, we have Kathy Gibbons and Jerry Stephenson. And um, let's see. Let me, who else we have? Guy Chambers, Philip Stern. So we'll try to get through as many people as we can. And Mike Bales, too. So let's get through that. Let's call up um, um, Kathy Gibbons, who hasn't been on in a while. Hopefully she's still around. Hey, Kathy. I'm so glad you could join us again. It's been a little bit of a oh, while. Um, thank you. Yes. I fall off the world every now and then, <laughs> but you guys always bring me back. So thank you for that. Yeah, no problem. Well, I'm glad you landed back here. And uh, what did you want to share today? Well, I made up a word, so um, I think I'll read that one. It's called Siblify. Excellent. I have it right here. And so go ahead um, whenever you're ready. Okay. And there's a definition from the non-existent dictionary up there. (laughs) Siblify is a verb, which means arrogantly attempt to arrange, classify, or typify a collection of brothers and sisters. See also Dramatis Personae. Oh, it's another excellent word. I love all these words that people are coming up with. Siblify. That's great. <laughs> Number one is a Marine, Semper Fi, do or die. He sends cards for all occasions, celebrating life. 
He great-grandfathers his brood and plays baseball meant for seniors, hit or miss, all along the baseline. Every week, always strong, always faithful. Number two has a birthmark, brown as chocolate, bittersweet, on her upper arm. She dives into obsessions, swimming for her life, and wears a suit of armor to protect her from the deep. Instead, she sometimes sinks. Number three, smokes her weed. It helps her do her housework. She entertains her sisters in her bed. So expansive, cobalt mirrors casting spells. Her pale skin is ginger-freckled, monochrome confetti dappling the night. Number four is a conundrum, less popular than most and more verbose. He wears armor, too, and it's metal and it's sharp. His cat, a hairless sphinx, never showing what he thinks. Number five is a daisy weaving daisy chains. She sings sonnets in her garden steeped in amaranth and grace. Like patchouli, it's her perfume and her essence. Number six looks like her mother. Coming out from under is a daunting task. Studious and smart, also frail with broken heart. Her teeth and bones leave her open to new breakage. Number seven is an artist and a gardener and a man who's been mistreated in the rectory and at feasts. He shatters if you bump him, then comes back together like a puzzle been reclaimed and seeking peace. Number eight is a winner, breakfast, lunch, and chicken dinner, athlete and scholar, loving mother, rescuer of orphan dogs and cats. She is not fond of possums, has no patience for their posture. She is more direct, adept at tests. Maybe they all wear masks. Well, that was wonderful, Kathy. Thanks so much for sharing that. It was simplify, another word that I hope I see uh, become <laughs> part of the lexicon. <laughs> okay, thanks, Tim. You yeah. have a great day. Yep, thanks me too. for everything. Thanks for the wonderful interview. Yeah, always my pleasure. Bye, Kathy. Yeah, bye-bye. Um, Kathy Gibbons with Simplify. And next, let's go to Jerry Stephenson. We're calling him up. Hey, Jerry, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Tim. Yeah, it's great to hear yes, from you. Yes, indeed. So, the sun's so. shining. Everything's everything's working out good, and I'm live on air. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Yeah, it's a beautiful day here too. It's chilly, but um, but sunny. Next week we're gonna have a blizzard during the show, I think. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> but uh, today is beautiful, sunny day up in the mountains of Southern California. So what did you want to share today, uh, Jerry Stephenson, aka the Word Butcher? <laughs> yes, you know before. what I play with. I, I, <laughs> I play with words all the time, and when you brought this prompt up, that was one of the words that I was first played with years ago when I was a kid playing drums in a rock band. Uh-huh. This word blew me away. Then Stephen King picked up the word. I couldn't believe it. Oh wow! I thought, well, I'm in great company here. Out of my league, though. But anyways, I'll read this to you now. It's called "A Time to Pencilate This Tale." Now, pencilate actually means, okay, Mm -hmm. the temporary recording of a minor event possibly not reoccurring. Because you pencilate, you put it in pencil. Ah. You could incolate to record it forever, or you could keonate to type it for the world. Oh, interesting. Okay, here we go. Time to pencilate this tale, okay? Tale to be spun from a story yet undone. Vague truth was accinated prior to having suffered, thoroughly not pencilated. Was it true, lost from being retold, or horribly falsinated, debauchery held high, whence it should have endured, enginated. Sorry, enginated, sorry. Chuck Berry said it better with his cup to fill when Maybelline roared up in her coupe de ville. Then he motivated over the hill. 
<laughs> that was great. Yeah. Motivated was the was the, the theme that Stephen King picked up on for the book, Christine. The oh, interesting. Lived. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. Thanks for sharing so anyway, that. You, you hit the na- you're welcome. <laughs> you hit the nail on the head for me. I only use word butcher when I'm speaking or doing something else because I like I change verbs into nouns and nouns into verbs all the time. <laughs> you definitely do. You have a lot of play with that, and it's always fun. Thanks for sharing that, Jerry. Yes, thank you so much, Jim. Take care. Yep, bye. Bye-bye. This is Jerry Stephenson with Time to Pencilvate This Tale. <laughs> and um, let's go to... Um, f- hey, Philip Stern, how you doing today? Pretty good. I'm uh, kind of drained. Oh, yeah? Is this, yeah, that uh, always happens when I get such good stuff. <laughs> you know, the session was so, so draining today because it you know, involved my feelings. Really good. Oh, I'm so glad you enjoyed it, and and yeah, I um I, I feel sort of invigorated <laughs> at the end. Um, you know, it just makes me love. You know, every time we do an episode, really, because we get to see all these different poems and then meet with a poet, it makes me like love poetry again or something. If I'm getting yes. in a rut about it, so it, that's what I love about him. Um, so this is a poem, an ekphrastic poem from the for the. Th- let me tr- put it up for everybody at home. Um, this was the ekphrastic challenge uh, prompt for last week or last month, I should say, where the, the yes. ducks crossing um, in the pond, which I hadn't right. noticed anybody else noticed this, but you did that all the ducks were female. So um, yes. here's the picture, just so people can see what we're talking about. This was the poet's response or ekphrastic challenge prompt for uh, October, and this is your right. poem that you wrote for that. Yes, I started it um, when I noticed, uh, you know, the uh, that there were no male ducks in it, mm-hmm. and then of course uh, I I realized uh, that I couldn't submit it because you know the picture was not, uh, you know, the picture did not have the poem was not about <laughs> mostly what was in the picture. Well, that's but okay. Anyway, it, it inspires the poem. Yeah, yeah. I guess I could have. I think anyway, you could have, yeah. But anyway. All right. I uh, anyway, I looked up, you know, something and real and found out that uh, they don't mate forever. <laughs> ah, interesting. You know, I guess which was kind of a myth that uh, you know pers- persevered for many years. And um, at any rate, uh, you know, here's the poem. Okay. okay. Single mother on the pond. Missing from the picture is the mallard male. I have watched him twitch his tail have seen him preen, seemingly well aware how well he is tailored, with sleek green head sheen and slick white-banded neck, my Lord Drake did regally paddle with minimal ripple. And now he's gone, his disappearance not likely to do with some feathered hussy, and probably not some hunter's quarry, but simply no longer wishing to be a father. So here on the pond, from a good distance beyond, has come a dull brown female who did waddle across the dangerous asphalt, conducting her ducklings all neatly aligned, stopping traffic along the way. She now having to be doubly powerful. Uh, Excellent poem. I love that. Thanks for sharing that, Philip. My pleasure. And thank you for this great session and all, all your your interviewing, by the way, is great. I love it. the questions you ask. <laughs> oh, thanks so much. I appreciate that. Um, it's always great to hear from you, too, in your, in your wonderful poems. I'm glad you could share them. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye. Yeah, that was Philip Stern 
with Single Mother on the Pond. That's going to be it for the open lines today. I hope I didn't miss anybody, but I'm really running out of time. Um, so the, really quickly, the um, Saiku for this week was here. This is based on, I don't remember. I wrote this last night and I have no recollection. Brain Drain, here's the article. Brain Drain, scientists explain why neurons consume so much fuel even when at rest. Oh yeah, that's a, yeah this was an interesting article. So the so your brain consumes like 40% of your energy, which is amazing. Like it uses so much more energy than the rest of your organs. Um, and it, it uses, even in, um, it's long been studied for the last like three decades maybe, that in comatose patients um, even use a lot of, um, a lot of energy uh, is consumed in brain processing, even when they're not processing. So we're just using, constantly using fuel and using fuel and no one really knew why. It was a big mystery. And so this new research showed the explanation for why. And it's because um, you kind of have to think of like the neurons as like guns or something or cannons that are about to be fired. So imagine like, you know, it's going to fire a cannonball across the neural synapse, which is what a, um, what a neurotransmitter is. And um, so the neurons, even when they're not in use, have to keep this like cannon packed to be ready to shoot across the synapse. And what it turns out is gunpowder you could say which is in the form of protons leak out of the cannon constantly so the body's always kind of like packing the gunpowder into the cannon of the neurons or something and so that's why it's always using energy and that's so that at a moment's notice every neuron's ready to fire with you know fully loaded with neurotransmitters to pass on the signal if it has to so it's sort of a it's something that we use a lot of energy um and we sacrifice that that caloric intake that we need in order to have brains that, that process things quickly. And obviously this is um, beneficial evolutionarily, and that's why we have um, brains that consume as much energy as we do. So that was really fascinating research, I thought. And this is uh, inspired by this psyche. I don't ever know how far to stray, but here's a bit of a stray from that, from, from packing neurons to this. The Sunday, the psyche here. Holiday stuffing the tree in its box. Holidays, stuffing the tree in its box. That is your Saiku for today, and that is the show for today. Next week's prompt is going to be this. Take a walk around your neighborhood and write a poem about it. Um, alternatives to walking, take a drive, sit on your porch, or look out your window. But take a walk um, around your neighborhood or a drive or something like that, and then write a poem about what you see in your neighborhood, which will be an easy one for me to do because I take the dog for a walk a lot. <laughs> and... Uh, so we'll see what comes up out of this prompt. That is next week's prompt. And next week's guest is going to be Jim Daniels. Um, his new book, Gunshy, he's been in many issues of Rattle. He's a prominent Pittsburgh poet. So he was on our Rust Belt issue, which is why we have this background. Um, but just a wonderful and, and eclectic style that he has. But this is Gunshy by Jim Daniels. He'll be the guest next week for Rattlecast 122. Hope to see you then. In the meantime, we'll do the critique of the week and all that, but I hope you have a rest, a great rest of your Sunday, and I will talk to you soon. Goodbye.